So go ahead and we'll just go right into it. We've got a, a lot that we're going to read today. But I want to kind of carry over. Last week was a week that, if you weren't here for it, was pretty raw, pretty unfiltered. Uh, how many of you are, are still blushing from last weekend? Some of you are like, I saw the Facebook post, that's why I wasn't here, Pastor. So uh, we had a couple of comments back, actually, it was pretty cool. There was uh, a couple of people that came up and, and talked to me and actually sent me messages afterwards and said, I'm really glad that the church is actually talking about these things. I'm really glad that the church is, is giving advice that the world has a lot to offer. Those of you that weren't here, we talked in graphic detail about marriage and sex and how important it is that we give a scriptural answer because there's so many options out there. There's so many ways that we try and prescribe what a good life looks like, a good marriage looks like, a good relationship looks like. And there's a misconception in the world that Christianity equals prudish, which is so far from true. In fact, when we read 1 Corinthians chapter 7, when we looked at verse 2, and we looked at the modern translation of it, it says, go have sex with your wife, go have sex with your husband. It was very detailed, very purposeful. And I also had a comment from actually a, a college guy. He said, I've never been to a church where they actually said what the Bible says. Usually I just heard, don't do the bad things. What in the world does that mean? Why do you think we have generations confused about Christianity and sexuality? So we're going to cover a couple of things to close out that topic some this morning, but then we're going to continue on, because chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians has been discussed and debated and argued over a lot because there's people that want to take it, and unfortunately, like many do, use it for their own agendas. The biggest problem, or at least the reasoning behind 1 Corinthians 7 being written, was because of that happening. People were coming and saying, well, you know, it's more holy to deny all these fleshly and physical desires. But then there's another side that was saying, listen, it's just fleshly and physical. Do whatever you want. God's redeemed the spirit. Just do whatever you want. The body's going to burn. Don't worry about it. And there was a separation that was happening and the responsibility of a spiritual response by how God designed us to operate in our life. So Paul wrote all of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and the problem that he was dealing with is a problem that we're going into in this whole series, how to play church. This is not instructional, by the way, for those of you that forget, this is not instructional, this is tongue-in-cheek, because when he wrote this letter, they were playing church. They were trying to force morality, trying to force holiness by a set of actions and forgetting the work of Christ. They were forgetting the work of Christ and how Christ has set us apart and made us holy and saying, do whatever you want, God redeem the Spirit. Neither of those are right. They're all in conflict with truth. So I want to just give a, a quick, well, don't worry, I'm going to give two main points for the beginning, they're not even on the screen, but these are things to think about in chapter 7. The first theme that Paul's getting into is sexual desire is real and natural. We have to realize that. It's real and it's natural. The whole section that Paul goes into later on, at the end of chapter 7, he says, listen, if you guys have a desire and it's really strong, Get married and do the right thing with it. That's what he says. He doesn't say shove it down because you're dirty. If you've ever heard that before, they're wrong. If you've ever heard it from the church or from a Christian before saying that because of some sort of sexual desire, you're dirty or you're wrong, that's wrong. Now, in the context that God designed it, there's beauty and holiness. So I want to add to that. Ignoring sexuality doesn't make it holy. 
using it how God designed it makes it holy. If I have a hammer, and we've used this before, and I'm using it the wrong way, what's the problem? The hammer or the user? Of course it's the user, but we blame the hammer all the time. All the time. That evil hammer. Evil hammer. How is a hammer most set apart for its duty? How is a hammer most recognized as a hammer? When it's doing its job as designed. Now, how many of you use a hammer for other than hitting in nails or straining out a board and things like that? Maybe you use a wrench because it's the only thing you got sitting around. We use the wrong tools all the time. We know that that doesn't always work out right. We know sometimes we curse and yell at the hammer when it hits our thumb as if it wasn't attached to our own hand when we hit ourselves. We often look at the tool and demonize it when the tool isn't the problem. Second point that Paul's trying to get across in, in the most important relationships that affect us day to day, male and female relationships, they're all over the place. Every sitcom is based on a male and female relationship, some sort of sexual desire, physical desire, attraction, whatever it is. It's a controlling relationship. It's an important relationship to be used as God designed. But the second theme that's here in chapter 7 is that there's all these desires and relationships we have. Paul wants to say this. There's a number one that isn't any of those. There's a number one that should govern and control all of that. It's our relationship with God. And it gets our focus right. Every, every counseling I do, whether it's one-on-one with, with uh, uh, guys that I'm mentoring, whether it's, it's with couples, whether it's with groups, I always have a discussion about priorities, about the number one thing in our life. If everything in my life is to filter through my number one priority, that's going to set the context for everything in my life. And if my number one fails, my life fails. That's a real feeling. That's a real feeling when it feels like everything has fallen apart in your heart and in your life. So here's, here's what I want us to look at. Let's look at chapter 7. And I'm going to warn you all, as I studied this in the New King James, which is what I typically read from, I didn't like the translation, not because it didn't get across my message and I wanted to change what the Bible said, but because the New King James has an older view of some of these words, and it misses the point. So I'm going to be using the NIV this morning. So if you use your phone, you don't really care. You just switch the version. If you're using paper, just follow along or get your phone out. It's not a sin to have it on in the church. Chapter 7, verse 8. We stopped at verse 7 last week. Let's start reading here. Paul's continuing. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it is, and you can underline that word, better to marry than to burn with passion. You know that word better there? That word better means more conducive to good. More likely to lead to holiness. But what have we heard so often? I'm staying single for God. Can you? Because being single doesn't make you holy. Being like God makes you holy. And you can only be like God if you're doing what he's called you to do. That's it. So the next thing is keep reading. Verse 9, or sorry, verse 10. To the married, I give this command, and Paul does this very carefully. Not I, but the Lord. Paul's making a command based on his own observations, his own theology, his own understanding, and it does match other areas of Scripture. What he's saying, because he talks about being an apostle of Christ, he talks about knowing and hearing the words from God, he's saying this, 
This is me. I don't have a, 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 a recording of God saying this, but I believe this matches what God would say in Scripture. It says this, To the married I give this command, not I but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. Now, I don't have time to go into all the Greek that's in here. There's a lot of different Greek words. Some translations will use the word divorce all the way through here. That's bad because that's not what it's saying. There are different Greek words for different things going on in the context of what's going on here. There were situations in the early church that if someone became a Christian, the marriages would break up because they felt like, well, I can't be with this person because they're not a Christian. They're going to ruin my holiness. It was a very old, uh, ancient Near East, Middle Eastern viewpoint that if you didn't have the same religious views, you became dirty by the other one. The problem is, is Christ changed that whole picture. So there was a fear that as soon as the wife became a Christian, she would have to run away and go and hide and go and work at the church or serve at the church or whatever it was and be involved in ministry so she could stay holy. It wasn't the case. He says, no, 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 don't, don't do that. Don't do that. You're not more holy because you take a set of actions. Next, he says this. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. Makes it very clear. Some commands in there that we'll go into in a minute. Next, verse 12, to the rest I say this, I, not the Lord, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. He's continuing to hammer at this point here. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. Common picture here, just because you see someone who's not a Christian that you're married to, you're not as close to them or something's just not right or whatever it is, that's not grounds for divorce. One of the things that he's hammering out, and it was a common practice, was as soon as you were done, and there wasn't an attraction, but there was one over here, there would be a divorce here, and then a remarriage somewhere else very quickly. As if the divorce was, oh, if I'm not happy here, I can be happy over here. Now, I know we don't understand that today. That doesn't happen at all. It was happening all over the place. The message translation goes into and ties in some cultural notes and directly says that statement. Don't go divorcing so you can marry something else you're attracted to. The commitment is a commitment. It's a covenant. You're not two anymore. You're one. So it continues on here. Verse 14. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife. I want you to underline that and put a word next to it, or two, two words. Not saved. There's a lot of discussion that happens here. People say, well, well if, if the spouse is a Christian, then the family becomes Christians. No, Christianity is a will-based decision. This was dealing with the problem of feeling like, well, I'm unclean, and so I can't go to God anymore because I've got unsaved people in my house. So what he's saying here is for the unbelieving husband, they've been sanctified through his wife, verse 14, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, her children would be unclean. As it is, they're holy. Don't worry about it. You're not, you're not ruined from being close to God because you got something around you that you don't think is clean, that you don't think is a Christian. This goes back several chapters when Paul said, listen, I didn't tell you to disconnect from the world that's sinning. I told you to disconnect from the Christians who are fakes, to go into the world and talk to those who are in immoral lives and not sit there and say, you're immoral, you're horrible, but to talk about the hope. 
It, it, it's, it's like sitting there in a place where everybody's filthy and yelling at them because they're dirty and never providing the shower, never providing the way out. It's like yelling down into a well where people are drowning and dying and going, you're drowning and dying, but not offering a rope. So Paul makes it so clearly here that our job is not to create heaven on earth, not to become a Christian and then create a holy huddle so we're not dirty. That's the dirtiest thing I've ever seen. Maybe you've been there at a church like that. You've been to a Bible study like that. You've been with groups where it felt sterile. How many of you, okay, let me ask this. No, because then I'll judge you. Um, let me just not, I just hate, I hate going to hospitals. I hate it. No matter how clean they are, they've got that weird smell to them. I hate going into hospitals. Some of you may like it. Some of you might be indifferent to it. For me, I have major white coat syndrome. I cannot handle hospitals or doctors. I, I don't know what it is. I'm already sweating just talking about it. I can't stand it. There's this, this weird thing there of like everything's supposed to be so clean. But underlying, you know it. There's probably MRSA hanging around somewhere. You're going to touch it. You know it. And that's what it feels like when you walk into those sterile groups. The sterile things. I remember a study that was happening on a, on a, on a corporate campus, and they were doing a, a lunchtime Bible study. And the way everybody would talk about it, it was like this secret meeting. And they go and they talk. They're like, hey, so uh, you're going to go to a <clears throat> study at lunch? And, and me, you know my personality, my response would be, what study? Well, the, <clears throat> the, the Bible study. Oh, that's awesome. Where's the Bible study at? And, of course, they're over here like, you know, Quiet, people might know we're a Christian. That would be awesome. That would be awesome. We should be known. We should be known. So Paul's getting into this saying, listen, in your marriage, you need to be known as the Christian, not as the, the person who broke covenant, not as the person who in front of God you not united your body, united your life, and then said, now nah, because of Jesus, you're dead to me. Whoa. Romans 5.8, while you were a sinner, while you were disgusting, while you were the grossest horrific, most horrific thing in the world, Christ died. There was nothing in my life that I could have ever done to make me approachable or desirable to God. He said I was, therefore I am. It's that simple. There's no amount of perfume, both spiritually or physically, that we can put on to make us more acceptable to God because he already said, I want you. Well, let me get cleaned up a little bit more. Let me get cleaned up a little bit more. God says, no. My love goes beyond that. That's why there's a lot of debate around the song Reckless Love, and most of the time I tell people I think it's silly, I think it's an absolute waste of time while people plummet to hell we're arguing about a word reckless. The purest form of that word as an adjective is not caring about your own safety. Now, if that doesn't describe the reckless love of Jesus, I don't know what does. That while we were yet sinners, never had said yes to him, we're cursing him with every one of our lives' actions, he died for us. There's no way I'm doing that for you. I love you guys, just not that much. But God did. God did. I can say, Jesus loves you and, and care about you and help you, but you cut me off with my family in the car, and I'm going to think things that just aren't Christian because I'm human. But that's not how God works. He, was, he is and was directly attacked and still said, I love you. I don't get it. I don't understand it. I don't know why. Next. Continuing on in verse 15. If the believer leaves, let it be so. Sorry, the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. 
The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. What he's saying is, is don't chase him down and go, no, if I get a divorce or you leave me or whatever, I can't be a Christian anymore. He says, no, 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 no. Don't be a weirdo. If they're going to leave, they know the truth. You have done everything you could to try and keep it that way. Remember the verses before? Reconciliation, reconciliation, reconciliation. You've gone for it. I'm not saying be happy about it. I'm not saying go, hey, good riddance. What, I've been waiting for this one. I'm clean. Because your heart was wrong. What I'm saying is, is that you're not going to change their mind ever. So you do your part. Let God do his. Verse 16. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? That verse I have used for probably 20 years in conversations and in counseling and in mentoring and in some really, really dark times with a spouse who is standing alone and they don't know what else to do because 99% of their marriage is spent trying to hide or get away from the sin that's happening with their spouse. And I said, listen, you have to have the number one focus in your life everywhere in your life, and that's the gospel. Is the truth something that you're focused on preaching or not? Now, I'm not talking walking up when as soon as they come in and they're like, you know, that's your second beer, honey. So, uh, you know, the Bible says do not get drunk on. Put it away, the Bible. <laughs> Calm down. If you want to have a conversation and open the doors, go for it. One of the greatest pieces of advice I was given in how to work with couples who aren't both Christians This guy said, he said, anytime you do counseling with these people, anytime you have a conversation with them, challenge the spouse who is a Christian to assume the other one is and ask them questions, drawing them into God. What do I mean by that? He said, if the wife or the husband is doing a Bible study and they have a question, go to your spouse first and ask what they think. What if they don't know? He just suckered them into reading the Bible, people. You're asking for their, you're giving them respect about their thoughts. And I've told this before, I've got friends of mine that are atheists, that, that everything that I teach and stand for, they are against. But you know what? I listen to them. It's not easy to hear the wrong thing for 30 minutes. But you know what they have said at the very end? And I know you guys have heard this before too, you've told me. Thanks for listening. No one's ever listened to me. You know what's amazing is the end of all of that. You know what I've always heard? And the reason I believe this is because of this church or this Christian or this religious experience. And now we get to the root. But if we keep just smacking the soil, smacking the soil, don't say that, it's wrong, then we never get to the root. We never say we love them. We say we love being right. That's dangerous. We can be so right that we're wrong in the mission that God gave us. Next. Verse 17, Paul switches gears. 1 Corinthians is the most irritating books to study because Paul's so all over the place. He's like running around on five cups of coffee. He's like, oh yeah, and then this one section over here, and tell him about this, and then, oh, we've got to go back to married things again, and he goes over here to the other side, and he goes, okay, and now about this. So we're on one of those little ADD trips here. Verse 7, nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them. You can underline that, put a star stamping on your forehead, That's power right there, just as God has called them. This is the rule I laid down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? We'll go into what that means. We're not going to do any demonstrations. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing. 
Uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Either God's in control or he's not. Verse 21, were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do it. For the one who is a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who is free when they're called is a slave to Christ. There's always a submission to our will that he's asking for. Verse 23, you were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation as they were in when God called them. Second time he said it. If you've ever done good Bible study before, you've heard it twice. There's a point getting across, so let's keep going. Verse 25, another ADD moment. Similar topic, here he goes. Now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I have a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Now let me just help you understand the word virgins there if you don't understand what it means already. In those cultures, purity, fidelity, all of those things were very, very highly regarded. And so it was always assumed from a physical perspective that a young woman was a virgin. They were always somewhat united, and they always went together. So it would be said, virgin meant young woman, and young woman meant virgin. They were always assumed. The purity was assumed. And, and, and the reason why is because as soon as it wasn't the case, that's when you would have culture that would try and come against it and judge them and come come down very hard on them without any solution. So this is a cultural word he's using to communicate a message. Here's where he goes, verse 26. Because of the present crisis, what he's talking about is this advancing of more and more hedonistic activities, the fleshly activities, the the Roman, the Greco type of things where it's always after pleasure, always after the things that we would want in our, our physical flesh. Because of the present crisis, I think it's good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Are you engaged? Don't seek to be released. Are you free from such commitment? Don't go looking for a wife. If you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she's not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. There were people being ripped apart as Christians, families torn apart, being tortured. And he says, listen, what's happening to the church right now, don't sit here and try and act like we're just going to live the American dream. We're going to focus on you know, a good, you know, pretty happy marriage. I'm going to find all these different things. There, is, there are horrific things going on. So take into account what's happening in your life and around you. Focus on what is going on. Realize what God has for you first. But he also says, hey, if you get married, it's not a problem. Just do it with open eyes. I would like for you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. Verse 35, he continues with the same command in the rest of verse 34 for women. Verse 35 says this, I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you. And so many times I've heard this scripture taught in a way that people are using it to restrict. Paul says it's better for you to be single, man, so just don't even worry about getting married. And there's a lot of problems happening. You go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1 and 2. Because there's real desires that are not being met, there's a lot of problems happening because of it. 
So he says, no, the problem isn't marriage. The problem isn't our sexuality. The problem is that realizing where we're at, our priorities. And he continues to focus on that because then he says this, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion. Underline that. Undivided devotion to the Lord. He then continues on in verse 36 all the way through 38 and says, listen, if you're engaged right now and you can't control yourself, get married. Don't sit here waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And I've said that to people many times. A guy I was mentoring years ago, he kept coming to me going, man, I just slept with my girlfriend again. And I'm like, here's your choice. And I wasn't nice to him. Here's your choice. You need to decide if she's going to be your wife and if she is, get married now. Because you guys are obviously attracted to each other. You're obviously into each other, and that's awesome. But if you're not going to make her into your wife, let her go and stop using her, you idolater. I wasn't nice to him. I said, I will not allow you to use a woman. She's not your pleasure tool. She's a human. Then two years later, after he'd gotten married, he started blaming me because his marriage was falling apart. And I said, no, 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 no. I told you to make a decision, not get married. I told you to make a decision. If she wasn't the right woman for you, you made the wrong decision. But because you couldn't look past certain desires, you now deal with your commitment. And I'll counsel you through it. I'll work with you through it, whatever it is. But he had to make the decision. And this is what Paul's going into. I'm not going to read all of it in verse 36 through 38. But he says, listen, if you guys are really into each other, get married. Don't play the game of some ritualistic or some ceremony or some cultural thing. Just get married. Just get married. And honor God with what he would do. Verse 39, a woman is bound to her husband as long as she lives. If her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. In my judgment, she is happier if she stays as she is. And I think that I'm speaking by the Spirit of God. Now, I just read through all of that because there's a tremendous amount of content, and I want to go through a couple of points so we can understand and draw out some things. If you go all the way back to verse 8, Verse 8 and 9 really bring out something related to singleness. And, and the world wants to share, or, or hyper-prudish Christianity wants to share and say this, that it's holier to be single. That if you're pushing those desires away, it makes you holier. I'm sorry, I don't agree with that. Neither does Paul, neither does God who created sexuality. It's not holier to be single if you're not called to be. It's not. And God has made it so clear that just because I try and do something that someone else said is righteous doesn't mean I'm righteous because of that. It's a picture of religion. One guy had a few things that he did, a set of methods or ideas that God exposed in his life. So someone else tries to repeat it to get close to God, but they never do. Morality doesn't make us closer to God. Being closer to God makes us closer to God. It's one of those duh kind of statements. And I want us to realize also, it's, it's not holy to suffer if God didn't put you there. <laughs> you guys, every one of you has that friend. And if you don't, you might be that friend, so be careful. Every one of you has that friend that comes to you and says, you know, I'm really, really in a trial right now. And you say, well, what is it? How can I pray for you? Well, you know, I was running away from the cops and my, my car flipped and I owe so much money and, and, and uh, all these different things, and I just really feel like I'm in a trial. I'm not going to say what I really want to say. That's not, that's not God. That's called consequences. That's not suffering because God is saying, I want you to be a stronger person. That's God saying, um, I made consequences so you wouldn't do stupid things. That's what he's saying. 
Not that the person's stupid. Every single one of us has one of those stories. Maybe some of us have a book of them. Maybe some of us already did them just a day ago, whatever it is. But it's not holy to suffer if God didn't put you there. Now, in that suffering, God can make you holy because you go to him, but it has nothing to do with the situation. It has to do with him. Just like when we talked about prayer a few weeks ago, I said prayer doesn't work. God does. Prayer doesn't work. God does. If prayer worked, we don't need Jesus. And any religious structure, any type of incantation works just fine. Or it has to do with the one we're praying to. And that's the key. Paul then switches gears into chapter 7, verse 10, all the way to verse 17, and maybe a little bit further. And he starts hitting on divorce. Because at the end of all these marriage discussions, there's people that were struggling with the concept of divorce. Whether it was guilt or seeking for some sort of way out, whatever it was, they were talking about divorce. And I want us to realize a couple things about God's view of divorce. This is very, very important. God hates the act and the damage of divorce, not divorcees. He doesn't hate divorcees. He hates the act. Why? Because if you take two pieces of paper and you glue them together and it's dried together and they're stuck and you try and pull it apart and make two papers, it's not happening. There is nothing clean about divorce, ever. And I feel so bad for any of you that have ever gone through it. I had a a friend of mine that we kind of grew close over time, and he talked to me about his divorce, and and he said, yeah, Joe, it, it it wasn't bad. It was kind of one of those things I think we both needed it. And I looked right at him, and you guys know my personality well enough. I said, man, you are a terrible liar. How do you even believe that? I said, there was a time that you were madly in love with that woman, and you said in front of God, death will be the only thing that separates us. Until something happened and tore you guys apart. I said, divorce, there's nothing clean about it. Don't, don't polish it and say, oh, it's, it's not a turd. It's a, it's a Hershey kiss. No, divorce is gross. Not the divorcees. It's gross. And it hurts. And people for generations hurt because of it. Realize and recognize that. But here's the other part. God cares about the people. He's a reconciler. He's a fixer. He's the one who says, yes, you've made these mistakes. Yes, you've made these willful bad decisions, whatever it is. But remember, Romans 5.8, while you were a sinner, I still loved you. Sometimes I want to kind of pop you in the back of the head. Unless you're like me and it's like a six by six, just kind of swung full swing because I'm way too pig-headed. God doesn't have a problem with divorcees. Here's a problem with when they introduce man's way of solving problems, which is to quit. Now, here's two caveats I want us to think about. And this is a warning. If you're in a relationship, or you know someone who's in a relationship where it's abusive and dangerous, do not tell them, God said no divorce. Get out of that. I'm not saying divorce. Get out of it so something can happen to make you and your kids safe. And I say that to both genders because right now, there are certain studies in parts of the country where men are more abused than women. And you know why you don't ever see it? Because we're too stinking arrogant as men to admit the fact that we got the, our butts kicked by our wife. But I'm serious. If there's abuse that's going on, I just met with a guy, actually, no, this was years ago, 
And he came to me and started weeping in my office. And he's like, Joe, I'm, I don't know how to say this to you. I don't know what to do with this. This wasn't even here in Alaska. I don't even know what to do with this. But my wife is a psycho. Now, before we get amens and you guys get beat up, rightfully so, guys, she was sneaking up on him and hitting him with things. She was pinning him down on the ground, screaming at him, saying, touch me. I want you to go to jail. She was just pummeling him, pummeling him. And his bruises and things in his body, he was saying it was from work and things that were going on. This guy's like 6'5", bodybuilder. And he took that beating and such, and instead of separating from it all and getting help for her and him for whatever was going on, he just sat there trying to think that it was holy and I'm not going to get divorced, I'm not separating from her. I'm not saying quit on the marriage. Give the marriage a chance to succeed and separate from the evil for that moment. So take that. Be careful about that. Next, I want you to understand the next point that's spoken of. He says this. If you're divorced, and I'm very serious about this, every single person that I talk to that's in the midst of, thinking about, or post-divorced, reconciliation has to be on the table. It absolutely has to. Well, Joe, you, you must have never experienced what divorce. By God's grace, I haven't. But I will tell you this, that I've watched marriages come back together in divorce discussions. I've watched marriages come back together after a divorce, three years after a divorce. Hey, guys, do you want to sit back there? Do you want to sit back there so he doesn't make too much noise? Reconciliation has to be an option. It has to, we have to be able... We have to be able to say, I'm going to look past myself, my desires, my feelings, my focuses, all the things that I want, and say, can I make it right? Now, that means putting a lot of me away. And if you've ever done marriage counseling, you've ever been involved in a conversation where there's this this situation of, I'm not going to let go. I'm not going to soften my heart. I'm not going to say yes to this person ever again. But then a couple weeks go by. Reconciliation becomes an option. Yes to that person all of a sudden is on the table. There's many conversations that I've had with people, many discussions that I've had with people where the entire, the entire discussion for hours is on why they don't want to be together, why they don't want to stay together. But then something clicks. And reconciliation is back on the table. The reason for that is because if God has designed marriage to be forever, then he gives the strength and he stands behind it to be forever. That's why reconciliation has to be an option. Now, I'm not saying that you failed if you couldn't reconcile. I'm saying that we have failed in exercising every option when we say, nope, not doing it. We've missed out on what God can do. This may not apply to you, but it may apply to a friend or a family member or whatever it is. Verses 12 through 16, there's kind of a a gospel-centered middle section there. And one of the things that Paul says 
is he says, yes, there may be a reason why that marriage is hard. And I'm not going to say marriage is easy. I'm not going to say that there's anything about our relationships that are easy. My wife and I will be celebrating 19 years this year. And I will tell you that there's nothing about it that's easy when it comes down to me saying no to me. But that's what real marriage comes down to. That there are very often times where we don't really say no to ourselves. We, we want to meet our own goals, our own desires. And the problem is, is that we miss this point. Use your marriage to be a light to the most important person in the world. I didn't say anything about believer or unbeliever. A marriage is a picture of the gospel. A marriage is a work of the gospel. It's important. It's important for us to realize that we are united in many ways inseparably from someone. We have an audience that we're kind of stuck with or they're stuck with us and can hear the most important mission field we have. Use the marriage to, to be focused on the most important person in the world. God makes it so clear that marriage is a gospel work first. And if we realize that, if we go into that relationship as a married person and realize that it's by God's grace that I've been gifted this person, it changes how we deal with our spouse. Because I realize that I'm accountable to God first, then to them for the state of the marriage. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. It's a gospel work first that by His grace, He's unified us. By His grace, He can hold us together. By His grace, for some reason, we're somewhat compatible. And the next thing is, No matter what, saved or unsaved, live a life that draws your spouse to Jesus. Live that life that draws them to Jesus. There's a lot of things we can do that just simply are fun together. And that's important. That's valuable. But what have we done that draws each other to Jesus? You want to know the most important thing that can be done? Just asking a simple question. Is there anything I can pray for you about? Every day. A lot of times people are, are told to say, you know, well, what did you read in the Bible today? And I've seen a lot of marriage fights happen because of that. Because like, well, why are you judging me? I missed it. You know, I didn't even have a chance to. And then there's the back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. But sometimes if you say, I want to give up something for you, so here's what I'm going to say. What can I pray for you about today? And it's amazing what happens in that conversation. It's amazing. Saved or unsaved. And Paul gets into verse 17, verse 20 and 24 have the same statement of wherever you have been called, whatever state your life was in, that you were called in, you don't need to change that to be more acceptable to God. Now, he does outline certain sinful activities that are just outright against God. You know, if you're a, a hitman, obviously he talks very clearly about abandoning certain things of the flesh. So he's not saying be a hitman for Jesus. What he is saying is making it so clearly that there are areas and situations and chapters of our life that we're called in and that I don't have to try and be more Christian to make God accept me more. 
So the thing that he says here, let me just read it in verse 17. And he says it again in multiple places. Each person should live as a believer, which is the title for today's message, just be a believer. Each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. It's really simple. I'm not saying it's easy, but I will tell you that throughout the entire week, as this concept kept coming up, and then it was said another time, and then it was said another time, there was this constant message of God doesn't say, I've called you to be a husband, I've called you to be a father, or a mother, or a worker, or an accountant, or a pastor, or whatever. He says, in whatever situation you are, while I've called you in life, just be a believer. Now think of that. How does that really work in Christianity? Well, if I'm a, just a believer, and I'm a pastor, I'm going to obey God in whatever he has called me to do as a pastor. If I'm a believer in my role as a father, I'm going to do everything that God has called me to do because I believe him, I trust him as a husband and a father. But if I turn my life and focus and say, my number one job, i got to focus, i just got to be a good husband, we can't. If we focus on being all about him and all about his, then that changes it. Because then he works inside of us to change our wanter. He works inside of us to change the problems that we have, the issues that we have. And it's important. It's important to see that point, how simple it gets. Some of you today might be worried about, I just don't think I'm a good employee. I don't think I'm good at this thing. I don't think I'm good at that thing. Whatever it is, the list of things that we might have. It's going to be so hard to do these things in life, whatever it is. But God doesn't call us to those things. He calls us to be his child first. It's that simple. That's where he focuses on. Here's the point I want us to think about. We've been given a life. We've been given jobs. We've been given different thoughts. We've been given different ideas and giftings, whatever it is. We are called to live as a believer in the life we've been given. And that's it. Now, I know you'll hear certain topics or phrases, even later in the teaching you'll hear some of those things, related to, you know, what does that begin to look like? Well, someone who really believes in the work of God is going to realize that there is a prescription, a way that God has designed life to work. And so in that belief, we say, I trust you, so I'll do this specific role your way, God. I'll do this specific role your way, God. I'll do this specific thing your way, God. Whatever it is. And the beautiful part of it all is that if I mess up as a husband, if I mess up as, as, as some role in business or whatever it is, I've got God to go back to first and say, God, I need your strength. I'm sorry. We go back to him for that strength and that wisdom and those ideas, whatever it is, to be better at his kid first. Next. Here is the most important key for this section, all right? To be the mostest Christian possible, this is what the, this section is about, okay? Now, how many, well, let me, let me just ask before I even look at the point here. How many of you have ever wanted to know this? Like, how do I, how do, how do I be the mostest Christian possible in this job or, or in this neighborhood or in this home or in this store or in this relationship, whatever it is? Anybody ever thought that? Am I the only one? Maybe I am. I don't know. Oh, I'd say it grammatically correct. No, I said it wrong, so you're going to remember it, okay? 
Here it is. Live like it wherever God has us. Wherever God has you, live like a Christian. Well, what is a what is a Christian Taco Bell worker look like? They pray over every burrito. No. Oh, I can't get on this. I don't have enough time, and I'll tell a story later related to that. I've had so many discussions with people about Christian food and Christian shirts and Christian music and all that different stuff. There's no such thing as any of that at all. What makes it different is the fact that the person that's involved in it does it to glorify God first. That's what makes it different. It's not because they're like, I'm going to make this Taco Bell for Jesus. You're going to have a hard time doing that. Have you seen the meat? <laughs> meat. That's not God created. There's, that's like one of the reasons there was a flood or whatever. I mean, that's not real. I'm not judging you for eating Taco Bell. I'll, I've had my fair share of all kinds of burritos and Mountain Dew. That was probably why I'm going to have cancer and die in 10 years. But. <laughs> i got to quit Taco Bell. Our spouse, our jobs, our hobbies, all the things that we're involved in, they don't make us Christian. It's being a son that makes us that. Nothing makes you the, your husband's wife, nothing makes you your wife's husband by the set of actions. It is because you've created that covenant done. That's it. Now, there are things you can do that prove it more and more. Why? Because you make a will-based decision that because I am this person's spouse, because I am this employee here, I will do my best to glorify God. You want another fix for a bad job? It's not quitting it. It's actually live like a Christian there. Some of the most bitter times I ever had at a job where I was searching and searching and searching because that dirty job was hindering me from all the great things that I know I could be doing in my life. And little did I realize that the only thing in my way was me. And I changed my heart. And I began to see the work of God in my life, and I got a chance to evangelize to so many different people that were at my job. And then several years later, God pulled me out almost as a surprise. I get a phone call, weird phone call. The guy's like, hey, yeah, we're calling about a reference on a certain job. And I go, is this David? He goes, yeah, this is Joe. Schoolfield, he goes, oh, hey, were you a reference for this guy? I don't even know who that is. What job is it for? Oh, it's for this job here. And I said, really, throw my name in there, because he's obviously a liar. Um, I got good references for you. Two weeks later, I'm working at a new company. I got an offer within a day. It was phenomenal. I wasn't even looking. So it's important for us to realize that where we're at is where God wants us. And here's the beautiful part. Is that as soon, if we really are focused on being his first, as soon as he wants us to move, we're not going to be wondering There have been so many prayers in my life where I've said, God, everything is so loud around me. I don't know what to do with my life. I don't know what to do in this situation. I have no clue at all what to do. So God, when it's time to move, just make it irresistible. Make it be something that I just, I I couldn't even, I couldn't even say no to it because I'm almost like pushed into it. And you know what he did? Every single time he answered that. Some of you might make decisions really easily. And you don't have the issue that I just talked about. And then there's the rest of us that are human. And it's difficult sometimes to make a decision. It's difficult because you know in your heart, you're like, God, I want to do exactly what you want. I mean, a lot of it is because of what I want, but it's also what you want, God. And we get confused. We don't know which direction God's pointing. 
So in believing that God is strategic, in believing that God has a plan that he's working out that he doesn't want the enemy to know about, we have to sit back and rest and go, God, make it irresistible. I just want to obey you. Because guess what's not going to change when we get the new job and the new house and the new whatever? Me. I'm still going to be me. I'm still going to need God. I'm still going to need to have that personal relationship. I'm still going to need to be walking out and obeying him in every single step of life, no matter what my career is, no matter where I live. It's still going to be me and him. Now, that gives a lot of hope. It gives a lot of peace. And I think that's the reason why Paul then starts to conclude as he wraps up the chapter. And he says this, that we can't let any distractions move us from the Great Commission. There are so many things that, that, that want to pull us away from the most important thing in life. The first thing we, th- we do not, actually, let me change it around some. We do not think about the Great Commission as the first response on every situation in life. We don't. Because we matter. Because I'm important. Because they hurt my feelings. Because they did something else here. We are selfish. We want our comfort. We want our way. And I'm saying we because I'm including me in it. It's hard sometimes to think about Does that person need Jesus? Do they need the hope that I have? Or do they need me to yell at them for cutting me off? Which one do they need more? Which one do they need more? At the end of the day, they could have cut off a thousand people in one drive. And the one person that does something different changes their eternity. We don't know why. We do know that everybody has that same need. He wants an undivided devotion. And the challenge that Paul has given multiple times throughout this book of Corinthians has specifically to do with what our focus is and our priorities. So he says this. There's a system that's out there. There's a world system out there trying to define. Let me, let me just read this to you because this section is, is confusing for a lot of people. Verse 29 Chapter 7 says this, What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as they do not. Those who mourn, live as they do not. Happy as if you're sad. If you're buying something, don't even act like it's yours. Don't get focused and engrossed and absorbed and controlled by the things of the world because it's all passing away. What is Paul saying? He's not saying, go get a divorce and don't act like you're married because he just said, don't get a divorce. What is he saying? He says, don't get caught up in the world system that has these patterns of, you know, you get married and then you get focused all on the marriage and that marriage becomes the number one thing in your life. He says, no, 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 If that's how you are, then draw back and almost act like you're not even married when you're with God. Just focus on him and he'll make you a better spouse. Next, going down and the things that you buy and the emotions that you feel, don't sit here and try and seek happiness and then have that huge celebration and have it last for days and days and days and days because if you don't keep the celebration going, then you're going to have to deal with your own feelings and your own depression and your own depravity or whatever it is. And he says, if you're sad and mourning, don't sit there focused on that. And then in the world with all the things that you own and all the things that you want to buy and all the things that you want, whatever it is, don't act like they're yours because they're not. They're a gift from God. 
Our focus always has to go back to God. What am, what am I to do with what you've given me? Whatever it is, start there. Get to the point, the vertical piece. Of where, am I doing what God has asked me to do with my life first? It changes our hope. It changes our focus. And the Christians that, and I've heard it my entire life, that want to talk about the evils of the system, modern society, technology, uh, people, styles, music, all that kind of stuff, they demonize the system and miss the opportunities that God gives. They miss the opportunities. Relevance is incredibly important in ministry. The entire Bible is written from a point of relevance, but not for today. It was written for a point of relevance for the people that were reading it, that it was written to. God's biggest focus has been relevance. I'm not speaking some other language up here. I'm speaking English. Why? Because I want you to understand what I'm saying. I'm using similes and metaphors and pictures and all kinds of points. Why? Because I want it to be relevant to your life and where things fit for you in your walk with Christ. Relevance is very important, but it's not the goal. It's a tool. And so is the system. The system that's in this world today. That's why we have a Facebook page. We have an Instagram page. We have a website. We do podcasts. We post the the teachings on our Facebook page. We post them on our website. We have all these ways using technology as an entry point for the gospel. And I think it's completely silly and completely nearsighted to abandon all of that and say, no, if they really want to hear about God, they can be in a seat. Maybe they can't be here. Some of you are slope workers. Some of you work seasonal work, whatever it is. Life isn't normal here. And so we have those opportunities for those entry points to stay connected. Use the system for God's glory. Colossians 3.17 makes it so clear. And what's that word there? Okay, three of you were convicted. Let's try it again. And whatever you do or you say, in social media, in person, over text, over whatever, whatever the situation is, whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus. Well, Joe, I don't know if I can really do that with some of the things I do. Exactly. You're making the connection. Do it as a representative of the Lord, giving thanks through him to God the Father. There's a lot of people that come through the office, even one just recently. And they're like, I just want to be a Christian. Like, what, like what's the prescription? Like, Man, you're with the right person. I will not give you a checkbox. Go to Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do. Well, what do you mean, whatever? Like, can I do this kind of music? Can I do this kind of game? Can I do this kind of drink? Can I do this kind of food? Can you say, I'm with Jesus in the middle of that? Well, some of it I can. Then keep doing that. And the things you can't, if God can't redeem it, then set it aside. That's it. It's a simple picture of how God wants to work within us, within the system that's out there. So here's four things I want to close with for this morning. Three questions, three tests. You can write these down. Uh, they're, they're kind of basic. But Paul sets a theme, and the reason for writing this chapter is he asks the question, are my priorities right? What is it that I filter my life through? See, if I filter my life through God and my marriage falls apart, I still have a life. If my relationship falls apart, I still have a life because it's in God. If I, if I filter my life through God and something's not right with my kids, I've still got a God to go to. 
So the more permanent and the more reliable we place, the more permanent, more reliable place that we put our hope and our focus, the more sure and joyful our life is. Let me say that again. I don't even remember what I said. I'm going to say it differently. (laughs) The more permanent and the more reliable place we put our hope, the more joy we're going to have. And you can put that hope in a great relationship with a guy or a girl. And I will quote a song to you. They will fail you. I guarantee you. It's only minutes away. They're going to pick the wrong restaurant. Obviously, they don't love you. (laughs) But guess what's never going to happen? When God is number one at the top, everything else can fall apart. And you'll quote Psalm 73 and you say, I have nothing in heaven and I have nothing on earth that I want besides you, God. Everything is falling apart. It's literally hell on earth around me. But I have you. I have you. That is real hope. So let's look at our priorities. First off, do I live as if this life is everything? Now, some of us might give a Christian answer and say, oh, no, no, it's all about Jesus. No, it's not true because the first red light or the first yellow, oh, I've got to stop. You're right. It's more important that you go and it's green so that everybody else has to stop because it is about you, Joe. No. This life isn't everything. There's more than this life. So when our preferences don't get met, 1 Corinthians 3.17, wherever you have me, God, whatever you've got me doing, I thank you for it, and I want to glorify you. Next, next test. Are my plans the only recipe for joy? Now, for the OCD in here, for the control freaks in here, the answer is yes and amen. But that's not true. And unfortunately, oftentimes, we treat ourselves and we treat others that way. That if they do it differently than us, they're wrong. Oh, that poor person. They're too stupid to do it how I do it the right way. And then we show them, or we treat them badly, or we talk condescendingly to them, or we beat our own selves up because, well, I didn't do it my way. I didn't get my preferences. And so, therefore, I'm going to have a 42-year-old hissy fit because I didn't get my way. Instead of, God, whatever you've got, whatever you've done, I'm going to give you glory, and I'm going to say thank you. The next test, priorities. Is my focus seeking heaven, and, and make this differentiation here, seeking heaven or making heaven on earth? Now think of that. It, it's, it's splitting a hair, which is more like a rope. I can seek after heaven which means the goals and the kingdom of God and his righteousness and his work happening on earth as it is in heaven. Or I can seek to help him out and make a holy huddle and keep all those dirty little people away and and only watch these types of things and this kind of music and talk about these kinds of things and have control because I am God and everything I say is right and all these situations. And I'm trying to make heaven on earth. I'm trying to say, God... I know you're doing something brand new and you're going to give me all this brand new different stuff and let me help you get started. I'm going to make it really safe for me in my life. I'm going to make sure that no change happens. The only one that's not changing is God. Everything else in life is guaranteed to change. Everything. So God, no matter what, wherever you have me, whatever you have me doing, I'm going to give you glory and I'm going to say thank you. Here's the last thing. What does the gospel mean to me? 
What does the gospel mean? As we go through all these topics, you can put your Bibles and notes away. It's the last point. As we go through all these topics, really this question forms our entire approach to life. If the gospel means something different than what it really is, then often my priorities will be in the wrong place. If the gospel is simply something for me personally, and I have my my Christian time and all these things, but no one around me ever knows the difference. If I was to take a poll at work and say, do you think I'm a Christian? It sounds kind of weird. They may say, well, yeah, yeah, you told me you went to church one time. But do I act like one? Do I sound like one? Would you really put me in that category? Because sometimes when they say no, that actually might be a good answer. Why do I say that? Because you're more focused on trying to connect with them in a relationship so that when God opens that door, you can share Jesus. It could be a negative comment because you don't act anything like Jesus and you're confusing to the message of the gospel. Either way, we have to answer this question. What does the gospel mean to me? Maybe you've never even responded to the gospel. Maybe you've heard that word and you hate that kind of music. You're going to get an amen from me. It's not my style. It's not my thing. Some of you might like it, and that's fine. But the gospel is simply a way to say the good news of God. The good news that Romans 5, 8, that says that while we were sinners, while we were spitting in the face of our God, who loved us and wants relationship back with us, he said, I'll take you and I'll hold on to you until you quit your fit. You quit your screaming and yelling, I'm going to love you, and I'm going to love you, and I'm going to love you. That's good news. It's good news. It says it's not performance-based that I'm going to accept you and love you. It's because of me. God loves us because he loves us. That's it. You can ask the question all you want. God, how could you love me? He says, I do, and that's enough. But why do you love me? Because I made you. It's that simple. So here's what I want to do. We're going to close in prayer. Let's bow our heads. This morning, there's a question. And I want to start with one question. Something about the gospel makes sense now. That the message of Jesus, that that forgiveness, that the, the guilt, the love, whatever it is, it, you don't have to understand all of it. Something's clicking. And I want to pray with you this morning. If you would like to pray that the gospel would mean everything to you, I want to pray that with you this morning. We'll just take a second. Just raise your hand. Every eyes closed, every heads bowed. Amen. Anyone else? That you want to make your number one priority, that you filter life through the gospel. Amen. Twenty more seconds. Anybody else want to pray with me? God, I want you to be my filter. I want all of life to be filtered through you.
I want all that I do to be for the glory of you and to say thank you. I want the work and message of Jesus to be the number one work in my life. God, forgive me for making my relationships, my job, my hobbies, whatever it is, more important than you, God. And God, we're, we're failing in areas as a husband or a wife or a father or a mother or an employee, wherever it is. God, fix that through us getting closer to you. Not because we're betterer, but because we're closer to you and you've changed us, God. God, please speak and move in this week that we would see where our priorities are wrong. And we would simply just be a believer wherever we are. Amen.